Let's open our Bibles this morning to uh, Psalm 2, picking it up in verse 7. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For when his wrath is kindled but a little, and blessed are those who put their trust in him. As we look at the Psalms, we are looking at 150 Psalms. The Psalms are really five books in one. They're divided into five sections. After each section, there's a doxology that would conclude the different divisions that are there. You can classify uh, the Psalms according to certain themes. Uh, We find um, the first one would be creation. Psalms about um, Psalm 8, the heavens declare the glory of God. What is man that thou art mindful of him? And when I consider the sun and the moons, similar ones like creation psalms. There are psalms that talk about the exodus when the children of Israel left Egypt and they were on their journey. The third one would be penance psalms. I think of David um, as he pours out his heart before the Lord because of his sins. So repentant psalms. There's pilgrimage psalms that we often read when we're in Israel on our way up to Jerusalem. A pilgrimage psalm would be uh, often written or spoken of as they journeyed through Israel up the the way to um, the uh, city of Jerusalem. And the fifth one is where we're going to be at this morning, and that would be messianic psalms. These are songs directly about the Messiah, and uh, probably the most prominent of these would be Psalm 22, which begins, of course, with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, many, at least 10, 12, 14 verses in Psalm 22, direct references to the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 2 and Psalm 8, uh, this Wednesday will be in 3 through 7, and they're just um, not messianic, but the one we're looking at this morning is indeed um, a messianic psalm. In uh, verses 1 through 9, what we have is a conversation between the Father and the Son, It is prophetic in that it has not yet happened. So the Bible is unique. Of all of the books that have ever existed, the Bible is unique because it foretells events before they happen. Well, what we have before us this morning is the second coming of Jesus Christ. We have the Father talking to the Son. We have the battle of Armageddon taking place. It is a prophecy that is yet future. This has not yet been fulfilled but it has been spoken between the Father and the Son. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2 are the kings of the earth speaking to each other. So you're going to have an earthly perspective as we begin 1 and 2. And then when we um, go to verse 4, all of a sudden you will have the heavenly perspective. It's one, one of the links that I saw actually between the book of Job and the book of Psalm. The Psalms. I wonder why and how they arranged it. Job is the oldest book in the Bible, and yet it's not the first book in the Bible. It's right next to the Psalms. 
one of the common denominators would be you, you have this aspect of a heavenly perspective, Job chapter 1 and 2, what's happening in heaven, but also what's happening on the earth. We find that here also in Psalm 2, we have the kings of the earth in conversation. Let's read verses 1 and 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves together, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against the Lord's anointed, and they're saying, the kings of the earth, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. What we have in view here, I would like you to, to see actually how this unfolds, but you need to turn to the book of Revelation chapter 16 to find out um, the kings of the earth standing and taking counsel together that they don't want the king of kings who is returning to rule and reign over them. And what we have here in view in 16 is uh, really the um, end. We're at the sixth bowl judgment. This would be of the uh, seven bowl judgments. This would be right before the seventh and last. The sixth bowl judgment contains in it the battle of Armageddon. But it also tells us how the kings of the earth mentioned in Psalm 2 are going to be gathered to the battle of Megiddo. Let's pick it up in verse 12. This is the sixth bowl, and it tells us the sixth angel poured out his bowl out on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up, so the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. Let me just stop and say, current events, um, this could be supernatural. The, the Lord could just do it, number one. So you want to give me an amen on that? You can just do it if you wanted to. But already this year, they have turned off in Turkey dam that, that flows into the Euphrates. They could do it that way also. I mean, the technology exists where they've, all, they've already done that to inflict um, uh, this war that's going on in the Middle East um, to inflict um, injury on the people in uh, Syria and in uh, Iraq. So yeah, that could happen. Either way, they're going to be dried up. For what purpose? To make way for the kings of the east that, that must be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go to the kings of the earth of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. So what we read in Psalm 2 is just one or two verses that says, we're going to break their bonds, he's not going to rule over us, we're going to take counsel. What Revelation does is give us better clarity. It tells us the Euphrates will be dried up. It tells us there's demonic activity involved with bringing these forces together. And then the only place from the time you've left chapter 3 in the book of Revelation, you're going to find red letters. Because chapters 1, 2, and 3 is for the church, the church age. 2 and 3 is primarily the church age. The rest of this is dealing about Israel and their faith and their future. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble, Daniel's 70th week. These are Jewish terminologies, Jewish terms. But here, if you have a red-letter Bible, um, what should jump out to you is all of a sudden you got red letters again for the first time since chapter 2. 
So what is about to be read is not so much information for the Bible student about what's taking place, but a word to you and I to, in other words, sit up, pay attention, it's coming down. Verse 15 says, Behold, I'm coming as a thief. This is Jesus talking to his church. Blessed is he who watches. And I can't emphasize that enough. What's taking place in the world today, we're admonished by the Lord to be watching what's, ha- what's happening and what's taking place. He's the one who tells us where. Between the sixth and the seventh bowl judgment, we're to take this seriously and keep his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. So just a word of encouragement to keep pressing on. No matter what's happening in the world, you're a believer in Christ. And um, Wednesday night we were talking about remembering Lot's wife. Words that Jesus talked about, his second coming. Don't look back. That was her mistake. She looked back to the old ways, and as a result, she never made it. So here we have this warning in verse 15. And they gathered them together in a place called in the Hebrew, Armageddon, or the Valley of Megiddo. And this is where the kings now are being gathered. Now, in one day, last, in this last week, and I can't spend too much time on this, but in one day we had two of the largest birth pains, uh, cons- considering Bible prophecy, probably since 9-11, I would think, because of the magnitude of the disaster. Um, and uh, we watched that unfold. And it was amazing, they were just going back and forth between the two stories, and they've been doing that nonstop for the last week. And the news this morning is that the, um, um, the Russian uh, that are on the Ukrainian side have actually removed the bodies. I just saw a picture of them. They found the, the black box, which isn't black, it's orange. They were carrying that. So, you know, this has caused a lot of the kings of the world are gathering right now, and they're talking about putting sanctions on Russia. But uh, it's very complicated, but it's a sign nonetheless. Then on the other hand, you have one of the major wars that have been going on since 48. There was a war that Israel got its independence. Then there was a six-day war in 1967, uh, which the boundaries that exist today are a result of that particular war. You have the Yom Kippur War of 1973, and then you've had smaller wars, 2008. You had the Lebanon one. But the one that's happening right now, very similar to what happened in 2012, uh, the tanks were on the border, but they never went in. We didn't get to go to Israel because of it. But they were there. This time they've gone in. And that is nonstop um, that, that's taking place as we see the focus of the world on this little, little state of Israel, about the size of New Jersey. And I'll talk about more than that in just a, just a bit. So when we talk about watching This is what's unfolding, gang, is what's taking place in the world today. It's just another piece of the puzzle. And we're watching um, um, this land war where they want to go back to the borders. This is what they're demanding. And even with the ceasefire, Israel, I mean, what country goes to war with their enemy? And it says, okay, we're going to take a break now, and we're going to feed your people. And we're going to allow this to happen. What do you think would happen if uh, they, they launched um, uh, some sort of missile from Toronto or Mon- Montreal uh, <laughs> into Buffalo. How long do you think we would stand for that? About two seconds. And yet the, the pressure of the world is against Israel, and it is a tragedy, but it is Hamas's fault because they're the ones that are putting men, women, and children as, as human shields 
Um, and uh, it's a disgrace, and I got to keep cool here. I'll get upset even thinking about it. But let me just tell you something about Palestinians, all right? The plain truth is there is no such place as Palestine. If you didn't hear me, I'll read it again. The truth is there is no such place as Palestine. The first time the name was used was in 70 AD when the Romans laid siege to Jerusalem and burned the temple, declaring that the land called Israel would cease to exist from that time forward and the area would be known from that time as Palestine. The name is derived from the the Philistines. It's actually a slam intended to add insult to injury. Palestine has never existed as a country, but as Israel has uh, seen a succession of usurpers over the last 18 centuries up until May 14, 1948. And then it became Israel again after 2,000 years. That's never happened in history. There is no such thing as a Palestinian language, a governing body, or even a Palestinian people. Palestinians are simply Arabs. They are not satisfied with the 5.3 million square miles that they already claim throughout the Middle East. They also want this meager 10,000 square miles called Israel. In fact, modern-day Israel drained its swamps and became one of the largest producers of fruit in the world. No one seemed even remotely interested in this place, which was 60% desert. The progressive theologians among us cry foul daily that Israel is engaged in apartheid by segregating a people group that does not even exist. The truth of the matter is the refugee camps from the Palestinians, what they call the Palestinians, could more than easily be assimilated into the Muslim world. They choose not to for propaganda reasons. There's no Islamic holy sites in Jerusalem. The Quran never even mentions Jerusalem one time, nor is there any historical evidence that Muhammad ever visited there. Believers need to listen to the news today with caution, with a discerning ear, and be careful to always refer to the, the Jewish homeland as Israel. God made a covenant with Abraham. We talked about it last week. This is my land, and I'm giving it to Israel. And it's a perpetual forever agreement, no matter what the rest of the world has to say. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? All right, I'll move ahead. Let's go back to Psalm 2. So verses 1 and 2, we have these kings being gathered to the valley of Megiddo. Now, the heavenly perspective is in verses 4 through 6. He who sits in heaven, now we have the heavenly perspective. And I have sits underlined, that's going to become important. He who sits in heaven will laugh. The Lord will hold them in derision. And then he will speak to him in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill in Zion. Let's turn to Psalm 110 this morning, which talks again of a prophecy that ties in with Psalm 2 and repeated often several times in the New Testament. Psalm 110 verse 1 tells us, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. When Jesus ascended into heaven, it says he sat down at the right hand of the Father. 
That's where he is to this day. In Matthew 22, we went into this uh, quite a bit of detail on Wednesday night. We went verse by verse through most of Matthew chapter 22. The Sadducees tried to trap Jesus with words by the tax question. Should we pay tribute to Caesar or not? Well, he shut them down rather quickly. Well, the Pharisees saw that, so they thought they would get in on the action. Pharisees believed in the Sadducees uh, do not believe in the resurrection, so they gave a hypothetical question to the Lord about this guy who, who had this wife, and he died, and then his seven brothers married her, and whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? They thought, him, they, thought they had him trapped there. And um, he says, you guys are ignorant. You don't know the power of God or the scriptures or the resurrection. And, and he says, God is the God of the living, not the dead. So he shut the Sadducees up. And then the Pharisees got back together, and they were going to trap him again. But while they were making their plan, Jesus said, hey, guys, I got a question for you. And he says, um, the son of David, the Messiah, whose son is he? That's in Matthew 22, verse 41. I'll read it to you. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, what do you think of the Christ? Whose son is he anyway? And they said unto him, well, he's the son of David. And he said unto them, well, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. If David called him Lord, how could he be his son? And no man was able to answer him a word, neither dared any man from that day forward dare ask him any questions. Must be hard getting into a brain game with somebody who created the brain, right? You know, he knows what you're going to say before you say it, and he shut him down, one, two, three, in order. But he goes back to Psalm 110, and that shows us here that the Messiah would be more than a king. Yes, he would be a king, king of the Jews, but he would be more than a political leader also upon a throne. Also, since David called him Lord in this Psalm, how can he be his son? The Lord cannot be his son by natural birth. It had to be of supernatural birth. This psalm is telling us that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Messiah, and he was born of virgin birth. If you look down at verse 4, it tells them the order of his ministry, because he's not only going to be a king, but he's also going to be a priest. And in verse 4, he says, The Lord has sworn, and he will not relent, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Let's turn to the book of Hebrews and look at this. Hebrews chapter 5 in the New Testament. And we'll talk a little bit about the Levitical priesthood. Jesus is not only the king, but he's also going to be a priest. What does a priest do? Well, Aaron was the first priest. He was sanctioned. He was purified to intercede for the people for their sins between God and man. He was the go-between. And it was called the Levitical priesthood. The Levites didn't have an inheritance. They had no land. Their possession was they got to serve the Lord in the priesthood. And everybody who was a priest had to come from the tribe of Levi. Now, the Lord is saying you're going to be a priest God is speaking to God, but not after the order of Aaron, but after the order of a guy named Melchizedek. That's what we read in Psalm 110. 
So let's pick it up, Hebrews 5. Remember that in Hebrews, who, who is Paul writing to? Jews. <laughs> and they knew that a priest had to come from the tribe of Levi. So he had to explain to them that the Messiah, when he comes, is not going to be that way. He's going to have a different lineage, not Levitical under Aaron, but under a guy named Melchizedek. Let's pick it up in verse 5, Hebrews 5. No, I want to read the first five verses. Change my mind. Every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. That's what a priest does. I'm referring to Judaism, Levitical tribe. He can have uh, compassion on those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is also beset by weaknesses. Because of this, he is required for the people, so also for himself, to offer sins. In other words, he's got to be purified before he can act as a mediator. And no one takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. You have to be called into the priesthood. Verse 5, now also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, and here's our verse. We now quote Psalm 2, verse 7. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And then it's also written in another place. Here's tying Psalm 2 into Psalm 110. You, he also says, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. On Wednesday, I took you back to Genesis 14. This morning, I'm just going to read a little bit from uh, Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 7 concerning him. Let's go to verses 19 and 20 of Hebrews 6. This is about the glorious hope that we have as Christians. The hope we have, verse 19, is an anchor to the soul. I love that terminology. Stable. Uh, Stability in an unstable stable world. There's an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast, in which he enters the presence behind the veil. This would have been what the high priest would have done into the Holy of Holies. Verse 20, they were forerunners has entered in for us, even Jesus having become a high priest, even according to the order of Melchizedek. Then chapter 7, the first three verses, tells us a little bit about Um, Melchizedek here. Who is this guy? Melchizedek was the king of Salem. This was before Jerusalem was called Jerusalem. It was called Salem during Abraham's time. He was a priest of the Most High God who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. See, Abraham had rescued Lot and he was on his way back home. To whom also Abraham gave a tenth of all being translated and this is what it means, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. So that's the meaning of Melchizedek. Now notice this. He is without father. He is without mother, without a genealogy, having neither beginning of days. This is important. He never had a beginning of days, uh, nor of life, but made like the Son of Man, remains as a priest continually. What we have here is what we refer to as a Christophanes, an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. What we don't read here that we did read in Genesis 14 is what he brought out to Abraham. 
And for those of you who were here, what did he bring out? Bread and wine. And so when we have communion, we do it to remember who? Our Lord. We do it with bread. We do it with wine. What did Melchizedek give to Abraham? Bread and wine. He is a king. He is a priest. David could be a king, but he couldn't be a priest. Um, You could be a priest, but you couldn't be a king. And now we have Jesus Christ, who is king and priest, not according to the order of the Levites, but according to the order of Melchizedek. He was both. He had no father or mother. He had no beginning of days. We'll talk about, in verse 7 here, in just a bit, of uh, the, the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not from the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah. And he continually lives, even this morning while we're speaking. He is interceding on my behalf. And he's interceding on your half, and he forever lives to be a high priest that as they had to bring their sin offerings annually in Yom Kippur for the sins of a nation. So our high priest lives forever. And that's what the book of, a lot of the book of Hebrews is explaining this to the Hebrews and to tie in the old with the new so they could accept Jesus as their Messiah. Let's go back to Psalm 2. The next verse is verse 7. Verse 7 is the Father speaking to the Son. And he says, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my Son. Today have I begotten you. Now it's because of this verse and um, his only begotten Son where different cults and false doctrines have come to the conclusion that Jesus is not eternal and neither is he equal to, much the less, God himself. Uh, The oneness Pentecostal believes that the sonship began at his birth, that because of the word begotten. He did not exist prior to conception. The Jehovah Witnesses Jesus is a created being. Lucifer, they believe, is his brother. Mormons, Jesus created, was, was created like man. That's what Mormonism teaches. Islam also believes uh, they have around the Dome of the Rock in Arabic these words. God does not beget, neither is he begotten. He's simply a prophet in the minds of Islam. It all hinges on this definition, and as long as we're in this verse, I'll deal with it for a bit this morning, because you'll have to deal with it sooner or later um, with whoever you're sharing with whatever. They'll say, see, he's a son who was begotten, and they take this one verse, and they hang their head on it, but you have to take the Bible in the whole context of what the Bible teaches, and if there's other places that would teach contrary to that, then we have to also evaluate that. Somebody want to give me amen on that? Well, a couple weeks ago, we did a study on Genesis 1, John 1, Romans 1, Hebrews 1, Colossians 1, remember? I'll just go through it quickly. I was wanting to make just one point. I thought it interesting that they were all ones. John 1, in the beginning was the word, logos. The word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, And without him was not anything made that was made. The first three verses of John chapter 1. 
In Hebrews 1, we read in verse 13, but to which of the angels said he at any time, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And um, he goes on to say, are not they ministering spirits sent forth to those who will be heirs of salvation? In Colossians 1, Jesus, for by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are in the earth, whether they're visible or invisible, whether they're thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and they were created for him. And he is before all things. And by him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is at the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might be the one that has the preeminence. McGee commenting on Psalm 110 um, says what's really being said here, this, this is an equal speaking to an equal. This is God speaking to God. The Lord said to my Lord, God speaking to God. And in Hebrews 1, verse 13, again, going back to Hebrews, the one we just quoted, um, I'll, I'll read it again. Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. This sets forth the deity of Jesus Christ and cannot be given to us in any stronger fashion. When folks say that the Bible does not teach the deity of Jesus, Islam, Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, uh, UPC, United Pentecostal Church, uh, I call them Jesus um, only, then that is false teaching. We are to be loving and respectful to them. Amen? But at the same time, wanting to win them to Christ, but also correct doctrine when it's not true. That's our job. This is what Paul did. I mean, after the book of Acts, you have basically Paul reinforcing sound biblical doctrine. And so we have uh, verse 7 here saying, I will make the decree, you are my son today, I have begotten you. You know, he has always been. What what was he a type, what what we read about Melchizedek? No father, no mother, right? Uh, Never having a genealogy. No days. He always has been. And so it is with the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, verses 8 and 9 in Psalm 2. The father speaking to the son. He says, son, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So in 8 and 9, we have, I will give you the nations. In Psalm 110, I won't have you turn here, I'll just read it. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike the kings in the day of his wrath. See, the wrath of God has never really been poured out before like it's going to be in the, in the tribulation period. Verse 6 of Psalm 110 says, He will judge among the nations, and he will fill the places with dead bodies, and he should wound the heads over many countries. Again, a reference to the Battle of Armageddon. But when it talks about his wrath here, the very beginning of the tribulation, if you're taking notes, Revelation 6, verse 16, the kings of the earth cry for the rocks to fall upon them, and they say, hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. 
That's almost an oxymoron, a lamb. <laughs> a lamb having wrath, the wrath of the lamb. I can understand the wrath of the lion of the tribe of Judah, but the wrath of the lamb? No, this is, this is Jesus Christ and a world that has rejected him, and he says, enough already. And that's why we don't know the time of the rapture. We don't know when the Lord is going to say, enough. I've had it to hear. Son, bring your bride home. Judgment of the wrath is going to come. We don't know when that time is. I know he's long-suffering. I know he's patient. How many of you have gotten saved in the last five years? Just raise your hand. Just curious. Quite a few. Not looking around in the last five years. Aren't you glad the Lord didn't come five years ago? <laughs> There's people in his patience that will not have to go through. And he's going to wait until he's not willing that any should perish. He's loving, long-suffering. And we wait and we say, Lord, we do pray your kingdom would come. We do pray you'd wrap this thing up. And we see the signs. But yet, that'll be the Father's call. And when the Father makes that call, we're out of here. Somebody you want to give me an amen on that? And we want that, and at the same time, we don't want people to go through this wrath of the Lamb. The Bible clearly teaches it. It's what Psalm 2 is all about. At this time, I'd like you to turn to Psalm 63. I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 63. And in Isaiah chapter 63, I had the worship team purposely sing the Battle Hymn of the Republic because they got the words from the Battle Hymn of the Republic from Psalm 63. And at this time, I'd also like to put up on the screen the country of Edom. and the city of Basra. And now let's read the first four verses of Isaiah 63. Who is this who comes from Edom, whose dyed garments are from Basra, the one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength? I will speak in righteousness mighty to save. Why is your apparel red, and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger, trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all of my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. It tells us here that he comes from Edom when he returns. Well, we know that the angels said to the disciples that when Jesus left from the Mount of Olives, he's going to return to that same place. And that's clear. It's also in Zechariah that he'll put his foot on the Mount of Olives. But he's taking care of some business before he does that. I just pulled this off the line before I, I, when I got to the office this morning. I wanted to, I wanted to double check that Basra was indeed Petra. And that it, I found out indeed I was, I was correct. I was Pretty sure, but not 100%. Um, You can see that there. And this writer says, Basra is an Old Testament city in Edom, which name is translated sheep pen. So that's what Basra means. Today it's called Petra, a rock fortress that is very defendable and and, uh, surrounded by mountains. Edom is southern Jordan today. They are descendants of Esau called the Edomites and are most Direct, uh, almost directly south of Jerusalem. 
Why would Jesus be so full of fury at Edom that it destroyed and is filled with blood at his second coming? Our clue is Matthew chapter 24. As the nations gather north of Jerusalem in the valley of Megiddo, Jesus says, when you see the abomination take place, then flee to the mountains. Isaiah tells us that they flee to Selah, hide my outcast from the spoiler, the Antichrist. That name there, uh, Selah, is another word for Petra. So what we have here is sort of a chronology of events. When the Lord comes back, I like this because this guy nails it. He's absolutely right. They, the, these people flee from Israel. They hide it. But with the pressure bearing down on them from the Antichrist, Revelation 12 says he follows them and tries to pin them in, in there. They're backed into the corner. They finally cry out that which was foretold in Matthew 23, 39. I will not see you again, he, he said to his people, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So we have a whole nation realizing when their back is in the corner, that they finally say he's the one, Lord, come, and he does. And he takes care of business, and he takes care of the Antichrist. That's where the, the blood is shed, and that's where he once again is, you know, <laughs> I have my mind's eye, you know, the Calvary coming over the, 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 the hill, you know, and saving the pioneers just in time as the Indians are there. That's sort of a scenario. He shows up. When all seems lost, he's there. And he takes care, and he takes care of business. 1 Corinthians 15, you don't have to turn there. But it does give us a chronology from when the time the Lord was here. I'm quoting 1 Corinthians 15, 24. It says that Jesus is the first fruit of the resurrection. The best chapter about the resurrection in the Bible is 1 Corinthians 15. Then in verse 24, he says, after these events take place that we're reading about here. And the Lord does come. Then comes the end, Paul says, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and authority and power. Ask now, the Father says, and I'll make your enemies your footstool. And now, it, now it's happened, it's yet future for us. Paul goes on to say, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy shall be destroyed is death. Praise the Lord. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is expected which did put all things under him. And when all things will be subdued underneath him, then the Son himself will be subject unto him and put all things under him that God may be all in all. We got two more verses in Psalm 2. Let's go back and finish them up. Verses 10 through 12. And we have the therefore. Always we want to remember that the therefore always is preceded by a lot of information that's been given to us. And the therefore is now application. Everything we've, we've heard about, the nations, what they're going to do, what they're going to say, and um, the Lord's response, he who sits in heaven will laugh and hold them in derision. I mean, how, what folly to think that a man is going to fight against a holy living God. We have 
the battle taking place, and then finally the, the declaration that they're going to lose. I mean, the battle's over. The battle that's going to come, we already know the outcome. And uh, now we have the therefore. Therefore, be wise, O kings, and be instructed, O kings of the earth. If there was any real wisdom, we talk about the wisdom of man intellectualism that's out there. Um, The Bible says there's many people profess themselves to become very wise, but they're really fools if they don't have a clue what's happening in the world right now and don't know that Jesus Christ is the Jewish Messiah and the Savior of the world. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? Everything else is folly. If you don't understand that, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The Bible just laid it out in Psalm 2, only in the second Psalm. And the Lord's laid everything else, what's going to happen. Nothing's going to change it. God can't lie. And everything that's been written here will come to pass. Heaven and earth will pass away, but not the word of God. This is more sure than anything that's ever going to happen. Therefore. Now he says, therefore. Wise up, kings. I'm talking about Putin. I'm talking about Obama. They're just men. I'm talking about the leader of Hamas. I'm talking about anybody in leadership. Be wise. Because if you're talking about taking kingdoms, if you're putting, think, thinking about taking back Ukraine, you know that Moscow is not the heart of Ukraine? Um, Mary's track that she did a couple of years ago lays it out. You know where the heart of Russia started? Kiev, not Moscow. So he has his own plans. We have the kings of the earth making their plans. What? To conquer their territories. Well, guess what? Our Lord Jesus Christ has his own plans. Amen? He has his own plans, and he says to his son, sit down for a while till I make your enemies your footstool. And the only kingdom that's going to last and and be established forever is the one that he sets up. Got to have an amen on that one, too. The only one that's going to last forever. So isn't it wisdom to invest in that which is eternal rather than that which is temporal? If you really believe what we just read this morning, be wise, understand, and watch. Be instructed, you judges of the earth, and serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, because when his wrath is kindled but a little, and blessed are those who put their trust in him. These last couple of verses is really a breakdown of Psalm 1. People who love and serve the Lord, who don't receive the counsel of the unwise, and contrasted to those who are ungodly. And they'll have to stand before judgment. So here's our admonition. We have a therefore for ourselves. And that therefore for us is also to be wise. The Lord told the parable about Christians, believers in Christ. Five were wise, five were foolish. And the only thing that made the difference between the two is some were watching and some weren't. Some were aware and others weren't. And um, Jesus says in Luke 19, he says, I want you to occupy till I come. I want you to be about my father's business. Therefore, be wise. We are the ones to be watching. The foolish are the ones who are unaware and really are not uh, investing in the things of eternity. I thought I'd end it this morning with um, a football story. How's that for getting sidetracked? You know, it's embarrassing being around me when the Packers uh, score a touchdown. 
I'm out of the chair. I'm high-fiving anybody who's in distance range. I'm making a total fool out of myself that I could care less. You know, because we just scored. And I'm excited about that. I was sitting, but all of a sudden I was standing. You know the only time in the Bible that we read Jesus is not sitting at the right hand of the Father? It's in Acts chapter 7. It's when the very first martyr gave up his life. He was preaching the gospel. He was laying it out crystal clear. And it says they were so upset at him, their hearts were convicted. And they said, you're a dead man. And they killed Stephen. But before Stephen died, he looked up. He says, I see heaven open. And I see the Son of Man, Jesus, standing at the right hand of the Father. We think about how sad it is when we hear of what's happening to Christians being martyred. (laughs) Yeah, we are sad, and rightly so. We're human. But you know the truth of the matter? (laughs) No more suffering, no more pain. You're home in heaven. And the, the Bible says, blessed in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. It looks like he was up out of his chair. Here's my first one coming home. Here's my church, number one, Stephen, and he's standing up for that in the same way that we would probably get excited and stand up for a football game and cheer when, when one of our guys scores big. Well, that same emotion. Acts 7, verse 55, Stephen, being filled with the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven, and he saw the glory of God in Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Well, he's there this morning. The good news is God is still on the throne. The good news is he's still a high priest. The good news is he's still interceding. We're going through some dark times. They're going to get darker before they get better. I don't think you need me have to have me explain that to you. You, have, you watch the news yourself. You see the direction things are going. Amen? We'll leave it at that. I just want to point out for the record that it's 10 minutes to 10. I might have just set a new record here this morning. But I was talking fast. Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for Psalm 2. We thank you that your word can't be altered. And as you have spoken it, so it shall be done. Lord, this gives us stability. And truly, as it says in Hebrews, it becomes an anchor for our soul in these troubled times. And we thank you for that, Lord, that certainty of knowing, like Stephen, that the world can do its worst to us but they can only take a physical body. And uh, Lord, you stood when that first one came home. And we thank you, Lord, that you intercede for us this day. So we acknowledge you this morning, Lord. May you be glorified. We make our way through the Psalms. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.